2: Before we kick off this podcast, I wanted to mention that this month, BBC Far magazine is celebrating its 15th birthday. This is an exciting milestone for us, and I wanted to thank all our readers and listeners for helping us get this far. For those of you who do not already subscribe, we're offering all our podcast listeners a very special offer to celebrate with us. You don't want to miss it. Visit www.bysubscriptions.com forward slash podcast that's podcast with an l podcast and you get 50% off your first six issues plus you'll get a stanley travel mug as your welcome gift which is very useful when you're accompanying us on our many walks this winter that's wwwbysubscriptionscom forward slash podcast find out more there and terms and conditions do apply now let's get on with this week's adventure Hello, and welcome to the podcast, the Nature and Countryside podcast from BBC Country Farm magazine. I'm Fergus Collins, and welcome to a new season of mindful escapes into the green outdoors in search of wildlife and wilder people. And this episode is just that. We're heading off to the Inner Hebrides, to the island of Tyree, which is a stronghold of one of Britain's rarest and certainly strangest birds. Naturalist James Fair heads out into the wilds, to find the corncrake, with local expert John Bowler. It's a bird not famed for its looks, but as for its voice, well, that's something else.
0: I've just stopped on the road, on the main road that drives up the length of Tyree in the Inner Hebrides. And I've stopped because there's some fabulous views of uh, the Outer Hebrides very far to the west of me, it's a beautiful, clear evening, and you can see the outlines of the southern outer Hebrides. I'm not quite sure which islands I'm looking at, but it's absolutely phenomenally clear and calm. You never see it this calm. The sun is going down. It's about eight o'clock in the evening. And if you can see a strange, hear a slightly strange hum in the background, that's the uh, community's wind turbine, uh, which goes round most of the year because it's always blowy here. Today, not too bad. It's maybe five or 10 miles an hour. But the reason I'm selling off somewhere is I'm going to the far um, western edge of the island, southwest uh, part of the island. And I'm going to meet a man called John Bowler. And together we're gonna go, and hopefully, find one of the UK's rarest birds. A bird however that has its stronghold here on the tiny island of Tyree tiny not perhaps not tiny but it's not big and I'm hoping we're going to find this strange bird and certainly hear it um, possibly see it seeing them is much harder I've heard a few I've been here four or five days and I've heard a few already but I haven't seen any and that bird is a corncrake, a bird that would have been common throughout farmland, in farmland, throughout the United Kingdom 100 or 150 years ago, but now is incredibly rare, basically only found in Scotland, and with, I think, and we'll find out later, roughly five or 600 pairs here on Tyree, by far the most important place for the species now in the United Kingdom. But we'll find all that out later, I'll be on my way.
1: Well, my name's John Bowler. Um, I'm the RSPB officer here on Tyree. Uh, I've been here 21 years. I actually came on a two-year contract to count corn and, well, 20 years later, I'm still here. You never left? No. Never.
0: I can't imagine why.
1: Well, it's just a fantastic place, isn't it? You can hear all the birds right now. It's just, yeah, a wonderful island, wonderful wildlife, very nice people, and it's just, well, why go anywhere else?
0: Yeah. yeah. Now, OK, so we're going to go and hopefully find some corn crakes. Mm. Corn crakes are incredibly rare now in the UK, yep. but they used to be a really common farmland bird, correct? Correct, absolutely. And so they were in
1: every single county of the UK okay. um, 100 years ago. So what happened? So basically, uh, farming became modernised, um, particularly during the Second World War when we had to feed ourselves more. Uh, so we, a lot of people blame Hitler for this. Right, OK. Um, so we ended up uh, just modernising and mechanising and doing things much faster than we used to.
0: And why did that do for corn crakes?
1: So corn crakes need long vegetation throughout the summer in which to to breed and feed and to hide and um, with increasing mechanization things became faster We fertilized fields crops grew quicker they got cut quicker right uh, so right now on the mainland a silage field can get cut three times yeah that gives no no time at all for corn crake to do what it needs to do in that field
0: yeah Because they they come in, so uh, what we should say is that they're migrant birds and they come from which part of Africa, I'm not sure. Okay, so uh, (laughs) we now know,
1: uh, so most corncrakes, the biggest uh, populations are in Russia and Eastern Europe, Right. and they, we've always known, winter in East Africa and Central Africa. Right. However, having done some satellite tracking work on the birds from Col, we now know that these... Special Hebridean birds go to West Africa. Okay, for the it's something completely different. In fact, they use grasslands uh, in West African Togo when they first arrive. Okay, and as those dry out, they then head east, fly across the Congo rainforest and end up in grasslands on the east side of the Congo oh, for, the, wow. for the mid-winter
0: period. Oh, my God, that's amazing. Which
1: is, you know, crazy. And yeah. E- even to the extent they're using grasslands that are kept open from forests by elephants, for right. example. So, okay. you know, really interesting kind of conservation. So they absolutely
0: need grassland. They can't go in a forest. They, they won't no. go... And... Right. No, okay. very,
1: very much a grassland species. Yeah, yeah. And then back as they finish the winter, they come back through West Africa because those grasslands have greened up again right right it's a you know very precise migration yep. that they do
0: and they don't spend long here
1: uh, no so the very first ones arrive in mid-april yeah um and then what we know is that they have a, a first brood. Yeah. And by July, that brood is on its way back. Wow, they that goes. They, they don't hang around. That's they, amazing. Not with the parents. They yep. they're just, you know, hardwired to fly south and yep. off they go. Yeah. Um, and then the parents carry on. So they have two broods, occasionally three. Wow. Uh, but by the end of September, early October, they've all gone.
0: Right. Okay. And so why are they still doing okay or well on Tyree? So Tyree
1: and some of the other Hebridean islands still have a more traditional form of agriculture. Um, here it's uh, predominantly crofting, uh, people raising livestock outside. Um, I can hear a corncrake. That's good. <laughs>
0: That's excellent. <laughs> um,
1: <it is. laughs> there we go. Um, yeah, so they're still keeping livestock in a traditional way. Yeah. Um, they're keeping back meadows either to graze later in the summer or to cut for silage. Mm-hmm. Um, even here, this, this idle wouldn't happen, it doesn't happen by accident. So there's a lot of conservation work going in, right. agri-environment agri-environ- schemes, yep. which essentially pay crofters to do things slightly differently to what they would do otherwise keeping vegetation back till the 1st of August is key. Right. That allows females to get two broods out. Sorry,
0: when you say keeping vegetation back, you mean keeping it long?
1: Keeping it long before they cut it.
0: I mean, I see a lot of... I mean, we see this field here. There's uh, cows grazing. Yeah. um, There's a lot of uh, yellow flag irises just kind of coming to the end of their... They're blooms, aren't they? They're yes. just slightly, you know, going over now. And you can probably hear the cows. Yeah. Um, and yes, it's, the grass is quite long. So would you expect to, to, to have some corn, so in corn there? crates
1: So corn will still use a field like this. Mm. It's, got, it's got cattle in, but there's plenty of other vegetation here. It's a fairly unintensive system. Yeah. So instead of all this being sprayed yeah. and just having one... Species of grass, lollium which is the usual thing. Yeah, there's a whole range of yes. species here. Yeah, uh, and that means a there's a lot of cover, different heights. Yeah, it's a it's a mishmash. It's a, a, a mosaic of habitats, yeah. which is really yeah. important. Yeah, and also lots of insects. Yeah, you know, lo- lots of invertebrates. So is even. that
0: is that what the corn crakes are eating? yes yeah. So yeah,
1: they they really need uh lush vegetation that's full of insects. Yeah, um, beetles, and they're picking snares. it up
0: off the off the ground,
1: off the ground, yeah. and off, off the plants, yeah, right, and right. off the plants
0: yeah. too. Okay, now I can see that. Yeah. don't know if you can hear that, but there is very definitely a corn crake.
1: It's responding to another one over there, these two. And they often do this, they have almost duet. it would be males kind of competing a little bit.
0: And are they? There, what they're saying to each other is, keep away, this is my territory. Yeah, they're essentially saying, this is my patch, uh, I'm here, I'm occupying
1: it. But at the same time, they're looking for females, of course. So the, the same message, I'm here, uh, come over and, and check it out.
0: And you but, were saying earlier, so they, they will have one brood. Uh, what is uh, that already happened? Is the so, first brood happened yeah, yet? Yeah, so
1: basically uh, the females will be down on eggs right now. Right. Uh, possibly the first brood's actually hatching. Mm-hmm. So this is beginning of June. Uh, the birds have been here since mid-April, some of them. So if, if the early birds getting into good habitat can already have had a brood, you know a clutch and hopefully a brood by now, and these males are now calling for their second mating.
0: Right. Okay. So they're looking to get on with it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and it's interesting because when they first come, it's mostly daytime calling for that first brood, but the second brood, it's all about nighttime calling. So
0: what's going on there? Then?
1: So not really sure. I mean, it, it, as you know, the nights are very short this time of year. This yes, far north, they so
0: are, aren't they? It's amazing.
1: We have about three hours of. Well, it's not even darkness it's twilight yeah really. yeah uh, but that's when we do the census work because that's when the males call most consistently
0: right because because in fact tonight you're going to be going out at 11 30 11 30 to 3 30 i think you said
1: yeah I, so i head off at 11 30 yep. the official census time is between midnight and three right so those are the kind of core hours um, I was out last night, it was a perfect night for it. Got about uh, 90 birds coming around the west side here. Yeah. Uh, I have got a volunteer, Kathy Shaw, who helped me do it. She was out last night too, she got 19 at the east end. Mm-hmm. And tonight we're going to, between us, finish up the rest of the island. Um, so you
0: do it all in two nights?
1: Yeah, it used to take me three nights on my own. Right. Uh, but now... Uh, with Kathy, it, it takes two, but we do this three times.
0: Ah, right, June. okay. So we we'll right. do
1: this right at the beginning of June, mid June, and then at the end of June. Uh, and there's a fairly complicated way of looking at where the calling birds are, trying to work out if it's the same bird or not. That is
0: a. This is a sedge, sedge warbler. Wabler. Literally just yeah. landed on the post. There he from. is. Look at that. What a view.
1: A noisy bird, and they sing all night as well here.
0: They sing all night. Yeah, I didn't know that. And
1: particularly if I stop the Land Rover when I'm doing my survey, a little bit of noise and they respond. They immediately start singing like this. Yeah.
0: You see, is that kind of he's responding to us?
1: Yeah, I think by us being here and making a bit of noise he's actually making a noise back. Another oh, concrete.
0: Is that over there? Or yeah, you... that's over. In that bit should we go and yeah, go yeah, over sure. there yeah um, okay so how, how, what, how many how many calling males do you have do you think on Tyree or his, you know from yeah. past years or whatever
1: okay so uh, the story we know about Tyree is that in common even with the rest of the Hebrides there was a a decline, as there was on the mainland, into the 80s and early 90s. And at that point, we realised that if we didn't do something soon, we—I mean, RSPB and the yeah. rest of the conservation community—realised yeah. that we'd lose them for good. Yeah. Um. So that—that's when we started coming up with ideas about what they needed. Yeah. Uh, and then. And did you
0: have to do all that work? Did you? Uh, yeah. So yeah. Not,
1: obviously not me. Uh, no, producer, not, but, but but in particular, uh, Professor Rhys Green is is the guru right. of the corn crakes, basically, okay. and he worked out essentially their life cycle, what, what they need on the ground in order to do what they need to do. Yeah. So looking at this patch in front of us, we've got a lot of iris and, and yellow flag yeah. uh, iris and yeah. also Phragmites reed along the, yes. the ditch there. Yeah. Uh, this is, we call it classic early cover. So yeah. when the birds first arrive in April, it's really quite cold here. Most of these silage fields are actually, being, they've been cut and grazed and there's very little vegetation in them. Oh, so okay. they need something to come into, yeah. to feed in, to hide from predators yeah. and do what they need to do to call so early cover is really essential, and then next door to that you have silage fields which then grow up during the summer. And we now know that probably uh, the first broods are actually, the first nests will be in the, the early cover. Right. And then the second nest tend to be in the silage. That, that yeah. seems to be how it works. Yeah,
0: okay. Um, there was something calling again, wasn't it? Was further away, Further that away,
1: that's a different one. That's a different one. Yeah. I'm really hoping they'll be in this field because right. they'll be much closer. So we'll just have to wait and see. Um, yeah so you need early cover you need the silage but you also need that silage to be cut late that that's the key and what what uh reese green found was first of august seems to be an absolute key date if you cut before that numbers in area essentially will generally go down if you cut after that they'll be stable or go up particularly the later you leave the cutting
0: and are you effectively paying crofters not to cut until august then yes
1: that's exactly right (laughs) Right. and there is a, a trade off between the the quality of the silage that is produced it's not as good if you cut it later uh, uh, so okay. there's a, that's the trade-off it, yeah. it's being compensated for that that loss of quality in the yeah. silage yeah yeah right and, okay. and most people keen you know ha- quite happy to do that they're happy to take a little bit of a knock on the quality but get hard cash yeah. in their hand you know but, right
0: yeah uh, and does it does it make a difference that we're, on, we're obviously we're on an island and quite yeah. a small island yeah it, it it's important that they make their own silage. They can't just sort of get it in from somewhere else, or it's harder, or whatever. It, it, it's
1: very expensive, right. uh, yes. Yeah. And, and haulage costs are fantastically expensive right. for anything here. So, so yes. you've got to
0: kind of produce it yourself. I, ideally produce yeah. it yourself,
1: and people do sometimes run out, and then they'll get hay coming in from the mainland in the winter, and right. it's, it's expensive compared right. to producing So you don't it want to do that? No, essentially you don't. No. Yeah,
0: no. right. So... Um, so have numbers rebounded here as a result of the work you've done?
1: Yeah, so interestingly, from the 90s onwards, that there was a steady increase once conservation measures started yeah. to be applied here, until a peak about 10 or 12 years ago of about 400 calling birds. Right. So back in the 80s, early 90s, we were down to 120, something like that. Wow, uh, so you massively increased yeah, it. Yeah, so it's so a really big increase. But since then, numbers have kind of... Bit by bit declined mm-hmm. year on year, and we're not totally sure why. It might be a slight return to early cutting, uh, and that's definitely been a, an issue. Uh, some of the the latest schemes haven't been quite as popular these agri environment schemes as, as previous ones. So, we need to get that right. We need to make people really want to go into these schemes. It's got to be really worth their while essentially mm-hmm. to do the right things. But we had uh, 285 calling mails last year, that's still a big chunk of the scottish population we have about a quarter of all the birds in scotland here on tyree yeah so that you know it's quite a big responsibility
0: so i've i seem to remember i've read or at least oh it's going again sounds like it's further away. Do they move?
1: Yeah, they do. That's right, the so thing. he's moving uh, away from it, us. In the daytime, they move. At night, they tend to have one calling location, yeah. which they use uh, regularly, and it's often next to a building or a bank, so it really projects the sound. So it becomes R- right, you know, really interesting. Loud. Yeah.
0: So it could be that it's the same one. He's just gone and gone, one well, yeah. getting away from each This guys. one has
1: shifted. I, almost certainly. Almost certainly, yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> That's
0: all right. <laughs> um, but so... I'm sure I've read that they actually the the latin name cracks cracks comes from the call.
1: Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Oh definitely. I mean that I mean it's always hard to put names or words to yeah. a call but yeah. Mm.
0: Okay. So I I tell you what we haven't said is um what does a corn crake look like?
1: Okay. So they're often more heard than seen it's <laughs> fair to say. But when you do see them they're like a small slim moorhen yeah. I, I would say. Uh, brown rather than grey the, yep. the males have got a little bit of blue grey on the face mm-hmm. um, and they're quite slinky if you see them crossing a road they mm-hmm. tend to slink across like a, a little uh, moorhen or even a water road. Do roller. they ever swim? No, I, as far as I know they don't. Right. I've never, okay. never known of one swimming and they yep. very rarely fly That that is a bizarre thing when you think that they've come all the way from Africa. But they do
0: fly yeah. from Africa. But they, have to, they have to do that. <laughs> they <right>. don't swim <laughs> from
1: Africa. <laughs> well I hope not Yeah, that would be a, a struggle but the fact is, they can do that, and yet when they're on the island, they very rarely fly they 'd much yeah. rather walk across a road than fly um, and they 're not designed for flying if you, if you if you imagine it they the only time we've ever known birds actually arriving, so that we know they arrive at night because you don 't see them arriving during the daytime and they leave at night you don't you don't see birds leaving here in flight, but a colleague of mine was up on Kenavara one morning counting seabirds and had these two birds flying. He said like like bricks you know flapping away really fast. Fat little birds, what on earth are these? And they dropped down onto the, on the headland in front of him, and they were corn crags. And that's about the only time I've ever heard of people actually seeing them flying in from their that's migration. That's really interesting. Yeah. While
0: well, we're waiting to see if this corn crag starts up again, tell us a little bit about life on the island. Okay. <sighs> okay, I mean, it's a, we can both yeah. agree it's an absolutely stunningly beautiful island, white sandy beaches all that kind of stuff that yep. you associate more with the Outer Hebrides in some ways very much so yep. um, so it kind of feels it's always felt to me and I've been here this is my third time mm-hmm. so I'm hardly experienced but it always feels to me like it's the Inner Hebrides but it's the Outer Hebrides kind of in the Inner Hebrides uh, yeah
1: absolutely so Tyree is the outermost of the Inner Hebrides it is, and, yep. and it definitely shares uh, quite a lot of features in common with the Outer Hebrides the, the, the amount of macha that we have this yep. the shell sand macha, that, yep. and the fact that it's so flat and low lying means that that shell sand has been able to blow across a lot of the island, mm-hmm. so we have about a third of the island is Macca, essentially. Right. Which and what is
0: the ma- so I'm I'm seeing um, these, these very short grasslands with lots of buttercups and daisies. Yeah. yeah, that's basically it.
1: So that's that's maca. Yeah. maca essentially is, is any. Uh, vegetation growing on shell sand. Right. Okay. And, and I actually went to a conference where people almost, you know, came to blows about the definition of what maca is. It's, you know, it's quite a controversial thing. But it, <laughs> right. it's really all it is is shell sand being blown across the island and allowing vegetation to grow up. In it's, it's a naturally fertile system. Yeah. That, that's the thing about Tairiti. It's naturally fertile. Um, so it doesn't need massive inputs of yeah. fertilizer. Yeah, yeah right. sure. People put a small amount on the <laughs> fields. They also use uh, seaweed, which is a much yeah. more organic thing, and also yeah. put out Plenty of off. seaweed around it. Lots of seaweed, yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a outer a Hebridean, inner Hebridean island. It's, it's a mix of yeah. both, and of course, all islands are unique. You know, yeah, and yeah. All, all slightly different. Uh it's a wonderful place to be, uh particularly on a, an evening like this. Early June, you've got all the birds singing. Corncrake's not calling at the moment, but they will be. That sedge warbler again. Yeah, another sedge warbler there.
0: Isn't it? he's just there, isn't yeah, he?
1: <laughs> no pretence at hiding. No, no. Anyway. He's a noisy little thing, isn't oh, he? Yeah he is.
0: Um, but actually, uh, not quite
1: the same picture if you were here in, let's say, January. No. No. So uh, it can be very, very windy. The fact that it's so flat and low-lying means that we get gales from all directions yep. here. Yeah, yeah. Um, and maybe not as wet as Mull or the mainland, but we still get our fair yep. share of rain uh, uh, yeah, and wind. So it's
0: um in the winter, you're not going to... What's what's your kind of daylight at the worst? To we're,
1: we're not too bad. We're not right. as bad as Shetland or Orkney, which no, is you know, further sure. north. So, yeah. Um, yeah, nine o'clock to maybe half past three to four. Yeah, OK. If it's, a dull, not, yeah. if it's a dull day, then it you feels feel like it's less yeah. than that. But it's not too bad. Yeah. And
0: so it's about, what, 12, 15 miles long, is it? mm mm-hmm. um, yeah. And there's 700-odd people here. Yeah. You've yeah, got one it. school, a couple of shops. Yeah. I mean, it always strikes me as a really nice, you know, classic sort of tight-knit community. Everybody knows everybody. Certainly our friend Dot, who lives at the um, East End, certainly yeah. seems to know everyone. Yeah. Um, is that is that right? Is that how it is? Yeah, no, definitely.
1: And it, it's a good mix. So probably about half the people here, or maybe just over, are uh, native, born and bred Tyree people who uh, have Gaelic as their first language.
0: Right, and That's okay. still
1: a big, big thing here. and at the So school, will
0: people speak Gaelic to each other in the pub or something like that?
1: Yeah, at, yeah. or at home in particular. Yeah. Um, it's a pity when we first came here, you'd hear it more regularly. Mm-hmm. But uh, there's definitely this thing where if you walk into a shop, people are speaking Gaelic, they, they switch back to English. So right. that they you don't think or they don't think that they're talking about you if you see what i mean i
0: do uh, i yeah. do
1: which is very nice but it means you don't really hear the gallic as much yeah. as you used to yeah but it, yeah it's, it's a key part of the culture here so that that crafting group of people it's a way of life um and then we've also got maybe 40 percent of the island or so are people from elsewhere who mm-hmm. come in uh, and it's a good mix it's, yeah. it's you know it's uh, an accepting mix um and tourism is a big part of it too, of course. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's using that bank as a bit of an echo chamber, so right? Kind of because that felt a lot yeah. much oh, louder, yeah. didn't and it? And that, that's still the other side of the field. If you've got one down here doing that, it's really
0: right. So after spending the evening with John Bowler yesterday on Tyree, today I've come out to the island of Lunga about, I don't know, five, six, seven miles, maybe ten miles to the kind of east, southeast of Tyree. Um, And in case you haven't realized, this is Renowned for its seabirds, and I'm staring just across at a sea stack. It's only 20 feet away, and there are literally hundreds, thousands I think it's 10,000 guillemots. There's a couple of razorbills almost within touching distance of me. There's a beautiful greeny, gray no, greeny, blacky shag. He's scratching his head with his, uh, his feet. And there's another one just below him, or her. Um, And there are a few kittiwakes in here. I keep hearing them, um, but not seeing them, which is odd. But maybe I'm just not looking hard enough. But there are literally, there are just seabirds wherever you look. There we go. There's a kittiwakes down there, right? They're sort of slightly lower down. Yeah, there are lots of kittiwakes down there. But really, it's it's the guillemots, really. Which I think are making the majority of the noise too. And it really is just the most spectacular, well, spectacle, spectacular spectacle. Oh, and what's that down there? Is that a seal or. Oh no, no, that is actually a guillemot. Okay, got that wrong. Um, Lots of. in the water, that is, obviously. Um, There are puffins here too, but they're in a. they nest in uh, burrows in the on the not on the cliff face which is what the most of the seabirds do so they're not here at this sea stack although actually i keep seeing there are a few puffins mixed in with the with the other seabirds so maybe there's there's some grassy bits uh on the stack and they must be nesting there too yes i can see one going into its burrow right now um and the first thing when you approach, actually, the first thing that strikes you is not the sound or the sight; it's the smell, which I'm not going to be able to get across, but it's that ammonia, sort of heavy smell of, uh, of bird guana, bird poo. And it really is quite, well, it's, it's, it's quite acrid almost. But I've sort of, over the years, having been to many, many seabird colonies, I've grown to quite like it, because you associate it with this just extraordinary melange of, of, of birds and uh yeah on its own it's probably quite horrid but I kinda quite like it. Um I'll leave you with the sounds now. So it's 6.30 or so in the morning. It's a beautiful sunny morning and I've come out um, to record the sounds of another noisy bird on Tyree and this, well, these are common and arctic terns and they're nesting on an island uh, in the harbour just opposite where we are staying. It's a good sized colony. There must be, I don't know, 50, 60 pairs there at least, Um, uh, which is really good to see because terns generally are not doing well in this country. They're declining in many parts uh, because of lack of food, probably lack of sand eels that they need uh, to feed on and to feed their young. You can also see seal out in the bay and some Eider ducks, three males I think, and a female. Hard to tell at this distance completely. There's a lot of oyster catchers around, I'm hoping to catch them as well, hoping to catch get some of their piping calls. I'll wander around, see if I can uh, find a, a few oyster catches. There we go. As if on cue, out he comes. Really love that noise and I love oyster catchers. We, we were dri- driving along back from having had a fish and chip supper last night and we managed to see He's a noisy fellow. I don't think I disturbed him. Yeah, we managed to see something I'd never seen before, which was oyster catcher parents and their chicks. There were two parents and three chicks and it was just the most beautiful sight we watched them for about five minutes just nosing around in the long grass looking for little things to eat and it really was the most wonderful thing when the turns the turns are all taking off suddenly and you can see there's there's a lot there there's easily a hundred individual birds i would say it's really hard to tell but there's a good number there And they suddenly all take off for no reason i can't work out anyway maybe they've been hassled by the gulls i I guess that's it the other day i saw a gull had taken an oyster catcher's egg or at least it looked like an egg it was some distance away but um yeah you could see it going off with something in its mouth and then it cobbled it down and it was being hassled i know it was an oyster catcher's egg or at least i think it was an oyster catcher's egg because it was being mobbed by a couple of oyster catchers that's why i presume it's taken an oyster catcher's egg. It's certainly taken something. He's flying right past me within twenty feet. There, I think he's. I think he's responding to that gull but I'm not sure. I say here, I don't know, I don't think you can tell them apart the sexes. <coughs> Turrie is definitely one of those places that gets under your skin, is I and mean, it's not just the perfect beautiful white sandy beaches, though that they are amazing. And the And the amazing bird life, Um, all the waders in the fields nesting waders, terns, the corn crakes. It's not just all that, it's just the sort of feeling of island life. You meet one person, you immediately meet more people, everyone's incredibly friendly, the people who live uh, near our holiday home uh, have all been very friendly. you know, and and you do kind of think, oh, wouldn't it be nice to come and live here in another in another world or another life or something like that? Um, and then people, of course, go oh, up at the winters. Some people say oh, up at the winters, and some people say, you know, winters are all right, but they are dark. Obviously, you get a lot of sunlight this time of year in. Um, uh, early June feels like it's permanently light. It basically is. It never re- really gets dark. And, and it's certainly it's, it's light from four o'clock, probably a little bit earlier onwards. And it's not dark at 11, that's for sure. So there's a lot of daylight. And then, of course, the converse is true. In the winter, there's not a lot of daylight. There's a lot of, of night time. And of course, it's a very windy place, particularly in the winter. But even, we've been here in August and it was pretty windy then. But uh, that is practically autumn by then. But um, yeah, there are a lot of challenges to living here. My goodness, it is beautiful. Beautiful.
2: So there was James Fair ending that adventure on Tyree with a little bit of reflection on that whole thing where you go to somewhere wild and have a brilliant experience and think about, you head to the estate agent or look at the prices of property and think, could I live here? So some wise words, beautiful, amazing. But from what he, from his beautiful descriptions and meeting John Bowler, who was that corncrake expert, just a fantastic place to visit and experience wildlife. Talking of fantastic wildlife, joined in the studio by Hannah and Jack who helped me make the podcast. Um hello, chaps. Hello. Hello. Have you ever heard a corncrake in the wild? Never. For a cornflake. Cornflake, yeah. <laughs> not a corncrake. Similar noise, actually, crunching on a cornflake to uh, a corn <laughs> c- corn corncrake. Yeah, cracks, cracks, cracks. cracks. is it's um just two cracks, actually, is its Latin name. <laughs> but uh uh, what what's it was really interesting hearing so much of them in that podcast there that when james or it was john who said they hundred years ago they were in every single county of the u k and just and now they're limited to these margins fringes of the islands and edges uh because of changes to agriculture and how we use the landscape but we've lost that that sound that cracks 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 cracks. Now I don't remember a while back Kenneth sent us a, some some sounds from another Scottish island and he remembers as a child being paid to throw stones oh. at the concretes because they were so annoying. Um, so obviously it was it's, it's not the most beautiful song, but I think it's, some, it's' part of our our sort of language of the landscape w- that we've lost and it feels so painful that so much has gone. I should mention James's book because he has been around the country, discovering wild experiences. He's written this book, "100 Great Wildlife Experiences: Where What to See and Where." And that's a summary of some of these great things, like corn crakes, eagles, seal colonies. There's all sorts of amazing things, some big, some small. There's some insects in there. I think he's, but it's really worth it as as a guide to. Even in Britain, there are these amazing things that you can catch up with, and so a book rec- recommendation this week. Now, I've yeah, I'm covered in mud. <laughs> um, I've just not dash- for the first time. Yeah, <laughs> um, I've just dashed back to the studio to be with you both. Obviously, I've been out. I've been out in the wilds myself today. Where have you been? Oh, phew. I was gonna- <laughs> I'm glad you asked. Um, I have been out with the archaeologist and writer. Presenter Mariana Hota,
0: Ooh, amazing, up
2: in near Avebury in the Downs, walking a bit of the Ridgeway, seeing amazing ancient sites. She knows so much about that area. <gasps> she showed me some wild and wonderful stones and strange mounds and eerie places. I've got a sound of the week, which is unbelievable. We went to West Kennet Long Barrow, and this is this sort of eerie snake-like. Mound on on a ridge on one of these downs, and actually from the from a long distance away it doesn't look much, but as you get closer it gets just looms and looms and looms, and it's got these great stones that uh, sort of entrance stones, huge great uh, sort of sarsen stones. And anyway, we go we went inside, and we were, I was really looking forward to interviewing, to, uh, sort of talking to Marianne inside the um, inside the chamber, but as we got to the opening of the chamber, there was this sound coming out. Someone drumming deep inside the barrow and doing a pagan ceremony. So we're going to have to. Do it was really spooky. <laughs> Her. that is quite something, yeah. Are we, f- are we lucked out there? It's it, re- it was the rainiest, windiest day, so um, I hope we've got some good audio <laughs> elsewhere. I'm absolutely exhausted, but that was it's one of those things where you're out with a recorder, and Marianne's brilliant. I mean, gosh, I could listen to her, she's the most generous person to interview, she just she also asks questions and we have a conversation. It's lovely. But she's so knowledgeable and so enthusiastic and so but then we had this just spiritual moment with this drummer in the depths and this ceremony. When will we get to hear the rest of it? Oh well I think this is going to go out in the new year. Amazing. Oh, with our season of we're looking at um sort of healing walks and mindful walks in the countryside. Some of the best walks and that really was a healing spiritual experience. I've got a clarification and correction to do with last Uh-oh. week's episode. <laughs> what um, did you do? So, yes, Mayor Culpa, we we tasted the Supreme Champion cheese, as awarded by the British Cheese Awards, called Ashcombe, which based on a French cheese called Morbier. And I think I'd sort of said something about mould in the middle, but actually, I looked into this and it's a really interesting, well, I mean, stop me. <laughs> I'm <boring laughs> me. Got, if I'm boring if you. I'm, if, if you get cheesed off with this story. It's a cheese that they made, that they make in France by, I think it's the, they use the evening milk. So milk has different properties when uh, cow's milk at different times of the day. So it's cow's milk cheese. And so they use the evening milk, although it was the leftover from making another type of cheese called Comte. So they had this leftover milk in the evening, which they let sort of, they they pasta, right made made into cheese, to preserve it overnight they would cover it in wood ash, and then they would add the morning milk to finish it off. So they had a full cheese. Oh, that's why it looks like a sandwich. So that's why it looks like Victoria sponge negative. So it's got this, but but both sides of the cheese should be slightly different. So corrections and clarifications. <laughs> after last week I took my bit of cheese home and I gave it to my housemates and we were all in the kitchen eating the lovely cheese and we even gave some to the cat and everyone was absolutely delighted and so that cheese that you all enjoyed and the cat enjoyed so much is called Ashcombe and it's made in Gloucestershire by the Kingstone Dairy so brilliant, well done them and glad to clarify how it's made (laughs) Um, anyway, if you want any more cheese Questions answered. <laughs> or to get in touch with us. Tell us about your own experiences in the countryside. What you like about the podcast. Do get in touch with me, editor at countryfire.com. And the best email or sounds that are sent into us, we will award a, a, a book prize. Do we have a cheesy, cheesy nature book? I'm sure there are books of cheese in the podcast We'll Lombardy. have books
0: of mould, won't we?
2: Uh, Mouldy books.
0: About mould.
2: About mould. Fungi. Yeah. Okay. All right. So we do. There's everything in the podcast library. Join us again next week. We're out on another adventure. But for now, thanks to Jack and Hannah. Thanks to James and John on Tyree. And thank you all for listening.